Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back to the show. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, the host of Foodie Pharmacology, the podcast for the food curious. Um, on today's show, I've got a really special guest who is involved in work with traditional medicine and HIV therapy. So more than 40 years after the first clinical evidence of AIDS was reported, there's still no vaccine. And once someone contracts HIV, the virus lives in them until they die. Um, the viral levels can be controlled with drugs, but not eliminated from the body. And unfortunately, this disease hits Africa really hard. Over 50% of people living with HIV globally are located in East Africa, although that region accounts for only 6% of the world's total population. So the Asili Research Alliance was born out of a calling to change these dire statistics. And many people that don't get tested for HIV because they can't afford the clinic visit or the medication to treat the disease. And so for this reason and many others, a lot of people that live with the disease seek initial treatment from their local traditional healer. And what Asili Research Alliance is doing is they were first, they were established by a group of passionate people that were interested in increasing access to HIV treatments in Tanzania and East Africa. And they're working within the system of traditional medicine to help people receive care. Um, so let me introduce you to our guest, Jennifer Waltz. She's been working in the field of clinical research since 2002 on both pharmaceutical and investigator-initiated trials um, that have spanned multiple specialties, including HIV, reproductive health, oncology, and orthopedics. And before she joined clinical research, she actually served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Tanzania as a biology and chemistry teacher at an all-girls secondary school. So Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jennifer. It's great to speak with you, and I'm, I'm really excited to learn more about what um, Asili is doing in East Africa. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I definitely really admire your research as well and all that you're doing to bring ethnobotany to the public. Thanks. Well, why don't we start with the name of, your, of the organization, Asili. What does that mean? So Asili is a Swahili word that means natural. And we chose that word to be more of a general type word. It means natural because, um, of course, the natural medicines that we're using and that we're researching, and it's just a natural fit to have the alliance with Tanzania. And cool. it's general so that we can research different words. We didn't want to bring HIV into the name so that we can research different types of plants for different illnesses. So, Jennifer, can you tell us a bit more about the traditional treatment of HIV? How does it work and which plants are being used and how do you work with healers? The treatment started when um, a German physician, this was back in the 90s, was working at a small village hospital in Tanzania. And he realized that most of his patients actually also took traditional medicine. So to find out more about the different kinds of medicine that they were taking and how they worked with healers, he set up a collaboration between the healers and the hospital. So he set up a meeting to talk to the healers and ask them about the different diseases that they treated. And when it came to the HIV topic, uh, one healer in particular named Waziri Marisho stood up and said, my grandfather used to treat symptoms that are very similar to HIV. And people were very interested because there really wasn't a very good medication to treat HIV at that time in Tanzania. So he invited them to, he invited Waziri to come to the hospital and treat HIV patients. 
And to everybody's surprise, the patients that he treated actually improved. Hmm. So the question was really, what was the medicine working on? Was it working on the opportunistic infections or was it working on HIV? So they never really knew that. They saw that there was a lot of anecdotal evidence that energy increased, the appetite increased, there was less diarrhea and less opportunistic infections, but they really didn't know how it worked. But because of that, they started a collaboration between healers and the hospital, and they actually started using that as part of the HIV treatment plan. And from that, an organization called um, Tonga AIDS Working Group was developed, and they helped to source the medication and kind of deal with the logistics of bringing the medication into that. And one of our co-founders, David Scheinman, was very instrumental in that organization. Um, so, so to be clear, though, when you're administering this medication, this is as an integrative therapy that is in addition to antiretroviral therapies, it's, it's in addition to pharmaceutical drugs, or is there a replacement for those? The idea is that it bridges the gap between people who don't adhere to their ART or their antiretroviral therapy. So in East Africa and in Tanzania in particular is the area that I'm more familiar with, there is um, a very a lack of adherence and that's for several reasons. Um, our, the idea for our treatment is not to replace ART, but to bridge the gaps for people who either can't afford to have ART, they can't afford to get it, it's too far away for them to reach it mm -hmm. uh, or they don't want to take it. Uh, there are people who prefer to take traditional medication. In fact, a, a guy came to the place where we're selling it or, or giving it out and mentioned that he, he recently contracted HIV and he needed some medication for he and his wife. He doesn't want to take ART because he feels that it gives him cancer. So it's interesting to come up with some of these biases against Western medication that are, are unfounded, really. So there's a lack of information about Western and just a, a, sometimes amongst some people, a bit of skepticism. Yeah, I think this is a, this is a challenge uh, is how we fit Western medicine or how does Western medicine fit within traditional systems of medicine um, and concepts like cancer and infectious disease. And there can be a lot of confusion about these concepts. Um, so how many, how many people have been um, served through this herbal therapy so far? Is, is there an estimate of how many are taking this through the hospital system? It's really hard to tell right now. Um, there have been thousands of people who have been treated with this. The numbers aren't really tallied. And then there's people who can make it on their own and use it on their own and other healers who also use this medication. So it is hard to tally how many people, but it's definitely in the thousands. Okay. Okay. And is this for the treatment of adults or are children also taking the therapy? It's for adults. Okay. okay. Yeah. It hasn't been tested in kids. They've, we've done, um, and the purpose of a CLE Research Alliance is also to do clinical trials and to test the medication to make sure mm -hmm. that it's safe and effective. Our other co-founder, Justin Amolo, 
is a organic chemist at the Institute for Traditional Medicine in Tanzania, and which is part of the National Institute for Medical Research in Tanzania, Dar es Salaam. And he did his PhD dissertation on these plants. He looked at the biochemistry of them and the bioactivity. And he actually found that several of the compounds in the plants had anti-HIV activity, as well as antifungal and antibacterial activity. So the plants do have, so that answered the question of, is it affecting the opportunist infections or is it affecting the HIV? And we've learned that it's a little bit of both. It actually works on the HIV virus, which was really exciting for us to find out. That's great. Yeah, I think maybe you can elaborate a bit more for, for those in the audience that aren't as familiar with some of what, what types of opportunistic infections you might have if you're living with HIV or AIDS. Um, what, what sorts of, of problems can patients encounter of non-HIV infections? So a little bit about HIV really quickly for people who might not know is that it, the HIV virus attacks the, the immune system of people. And so the HIV virus itself does not kill, rather the infections that can come because of a lack of immune system is what kills people. So in Africa, you'll see different types of opportunistic infections and what you'll see in the West. You'll see a lot of oral thrush, a lot of diarrhea, a lot of TB. So these are some of the opportunistic infections that yeah, that are very prevalent in that region. So oral thrush is caused by fungal infection, candida, typically in the mouth. And then diarrhea, is it infectious diarrhea or non-infectious? Are we really, because there can be different, many different causes of diarrhea. Yes, it's probably infectious diarrhea. It's some bug that they get that they can't. Yeah. And then tuberculosis, which can, which can cause a lot of, a lot of problems. So, the, the big question, obviously, for me is, what can you tell us about the plant itself? Is this, a tradi- is this based on a traditional medicine from this area of, of Africa, or where does it originate? What can you tell us about the, the formulation? Yes, yeah, so the formulation is actually four different plants, and I can tell you the name of them if you like. I, I would love that. You know, I'm a total yes. botany geek. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yes. And and. I always stumble on the Latin words, so you might actually uh, correct my pronunciation of the plant, but it's Stegonotenia aureliasi, Harrisoni absinica, Aspilia mozambicensis, and Pyracantha corupasana. Oh, cool. So I'm not familiar with with those as well, Um, but those are... Yeah. Do you, do you know by chance what families they're in? Or are they in a certain plant families? You don't know. Yeah. That's but okay. I do know this healing name for them. Ah, great. <laughs> um, which is not helpful. But it's, it, it's interesting in that um, the plants themselves are not very significant. You know, they're just kind of, they look like weeds. They look like everyday plants, except for Pyrocantha curvasana, which is a huge tuber. You dig down and you find it, it's just a little stick above the ground, but then you dig down and it's like a huge, I don't know if you can see this, but it can be like a very huge tuber. And that's the part of the plant that's used in the medicine. Oh, um, cool. And these are wild plants or, or are they being cultivated? 
Right now, they're wild plants, and that is our plan in the future to cultivate them just for consistency of chemicals. As you know, mm-hmm. the different soil types, the different environment can all affect the concentration of chemicals in the plants. So our, our goal is to have a farm in the future and to cultivate the plants. Cool. And how is this part of a historic traditional mixture that healers have used? I mean, it's interesting in some systems of medicine, you can have some healers will use single ingredients. In other cases, you might have systems of medicine where they use multiple ingredients in certain combinations to yield these synergistic effects. What can you tell us about the history of the, the ethnobotanical history of these? The plants are used independently for different reasons. They are, they've all been found to have antibacterial properties and a lot of them are used like many plants in traditional medicine in Africa. I'm I'm more familiar with traditional medicine in Africa and East Africa in particular. So I won't generalize, but what, what we've come across is that a lot of people use the same plants for different reasons. And if they find a plant to be effective for something, they'll use it for multiple reasons. So these plants have been used in a wide variety of of conditions, a lot of them for skin or for women's health, um, for diarrhea. There's there's quite a few reasons that people will use these plants. Traditionally, um, it did start with Waziri Mwisho, who who stood up and said his grandfather had been using these plants. And he would use them for similar symptoms to HIV, so diarrhea, a lot of probably more the opportunistic infections, fungal infection. These plants have also been used for fungal infections. So that is how we came to know about it with through his generosity in sharing this knowledge with us. Right. And how are they prepared? Are they are they prepared into an extract that's given as a supplement or are they a tea or what what's involved in the preparation and administration? Originally, some of the plants, they would use the um, stems and the bark. And one of the plants, you use the leaves, the zingiri, you use, sorry, the um, kurabasana, you use the root, that large root bulb. And you make a tea. And so it's very cumbersome in a way because the patients will go away with this large bag of roots and leaves and uh, root in there. And then they'll go home and they'll make the tea. So it is a little bit cumbersome. So what we've done is a couple of things. We've made tea sachets. So Mm -hmm. you can just use a tea bag. And also we have the capability of making capsules through the National Institute of Medical Research. Great. Great. Cool. study I would really enjoy doing is what do people prefer? Do they prefer taking the tea? What is more effective, the capsule or the tea bag? So there's a lot of different kind of clinical trials that we would love to do regarding Yeah. Well, let's talk a bit more about how um, traditional medicine plays a role in Tanzania and, and why or is there greater acceptance of traditional medicine rather than Western pharmaceuticals, or do people tend to want to have both options in an integrative approach, or what have you all observed so far in your in your clinical interactions? I would say it's more of a medical plurality. So they would people most people take traditional medicine as well as Western medication. Western medication is is great and it's effective, and people know that. 
the problem is that sometimes it's too expensive mm-hmm. and it's not accessible. And there's other reasons why people will visit the healer as well. But as far as being expensive, I mean, one thing that sometimes people don't think about, but what has to go into the equation is people need to find a clinic to get medication or a pharmacy. And that often itself is a barrier to getting treatment, especially for HIV. You have to go to a clinic, take a bus to a clinic, and that itself could be prohibitive. So as well as the doctor's fees, the clinic fees, everything like that. So so all this goes into the calculation of what can be affordable medication and what is not, whereas healers are generally in every village and they're very accessible. And so how are healers, how, are, how is Asili working with healers? Are the healers able to pre- prepare this formulation in villages or what's the dissemination look like? So... People come to NIMRI, to the National Institute for Medical Research, mm-hmm. and they have a collaboration with traditional healers. So traditional healers can come to NIMRI and share their knowledge as well. And they can they also have the treatment there that they can use. So mm-hmm. okay. um, distribution is mostly through NIMRI at this point, and we can make it more accessible to the villages in the future. That's great. One of our future plans. That's great. That's great. Well, I'd love to learn more about the the science behind this. So you mentioned a a few studies that have been done on the antibacterial activities and antiviral activities. What can you share um, with us about that? Have these been done mainly in laboratory settings or or have these also been shown in clinical studies and kind of what's happening there? There's been mostly in laboratories in vitro, um, as well as just bioassays that have shown that. There's been a clinical trial that's been done at NIMRI that showed very interestingly, there were three groups in the clinical trial. The first group was taking the medication, the treatment, the herbal treatment. Another group was taking ART, antiretroviral. And the third group was taking both. They found in the results that all groups improved. So even the group that was just taking the the herbal treatment, sorry, excuse me, herbal treatment. Do you Mm -hmm. want me to re-say something? Yeah, start me with just the group that was just taking. Mm -hmm. Sorry. So there were three groups. Uh, One group that was taking the herbal medication, one group that was taking antiretroviral therapy, and one group that was taking both. And they found that all three groups improved, meaning the uh, HIV level decreased. The group that had the lowest HIV level was the group that took both. And so interestingly, possibly the thinking might be is that the herbal treatment actually increases adherence. So maybe the act of drinking the tea, and in this form it was a tea, maybe the act of drinking the tea kind of triggers and reminds people to take their ART. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was just something that was that we found very interesting, that the combination resulted in the lowest HIV levels. Yeah. yeah. I'm getting a bit of an echo. Let's see. When it, when it comes to um, dosing, so and thinking about reminders to take your medicine, how often do they take the tea? Is it once a day or twice a day? And how does that compare to ART? 
It is very similar to ART. It's once a day, and ART is once a day as well. Okay. So it is very similar, yes. Great. So what have been some of the big um, the big challenges that you faced and, and the big learning moments in, in this uh, program of, of really thinking of how to leverage traditional medicine to reach um, these underserved populations? I think... I think one of the biggest challenges is actually on this side. It's people out, people in Tanzania, they want to take medication. They want to take the HIV medication. That is a challenge as well because there's a lot of reasons why people don't adhere to, to medicine when they're HIV positive. And this is in the United States as well as in Tanzania. But once people start feeling better, they don't necessarily stay on their medication. Yeah. And, and that has been a challenge to get people to adhere to medication is, is one of the big challenges. Um, and also there is a still a stigma of being HIV positive. So people don't necessarily want to get tested. They don't necessarily want to take medication to treat the HIV because then they feel, especially with the ART, they feel like once they have that bottle, then it's a stigma and people will ostracize them or they won't be able to get a job or the health workers will will be biased against them, which they have seen. And so one of the reasons why people don't go to the hospital also is because they don't necessarily have that um, confidentiality that we have here. So they will, they will have to sign in and register and have their name like, like we do as well. But that act is, it feels like it's a breach of confidentiality. And so if you go to a traditional healer, it's, you don't have to register. They know who they are. And, and so it's much more confidential for them. One of the, I would say, one of the challenges we've had over on this side is I feel that I need to validate the use of and the research of traditional medicine. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people don't really understand how integral it is to the culture and how important it is as a health treatment and part of the health system because of the plurality and that people use both traditional medicine and Western medicine. No, that's definitely, I think, a challenge. It and it's it's exciting to see, you know, as as you're able to um, work with local scientists and healers to conduct more laboratory studies and more clinical studies. I think that can definitely be a big help in combating biases against traditional medicine. Um, that's that's yeah. definitely our idea, and part of our our mission is to to show the validity of using it. And, and part of that is because it does also using traditional medicine or the reason why people go to healers as well is to satisfy the spiritual aspect of healing and medicine as well. So people culturally in that region have, um, different beliefs about where, where illness comes from. Obviously they, they understand, you know, there is a, biological aspect, but they also believe in a, in a spiritual aspect in that 
there's something, it's kind of the fatalistic approach of like, why did this happen to me? You know, and so a lot of it has to do with ancestors or something that they didn't do right. And, or maybe they were hexed. So they will go to a traditional healer who will satisfy the spiritual aspect of it as well, of healing. Yeah, that's very important. Those cultural aspects are really important, um, both for satisfying kind of the, the, or improving the healing process and also ensuring better adherence is, yeah, with, with the therapy. Yeah. Well, that's great. And so, yeah. So oh, sorry, I was just going to say the other thing that clinical trials are important for is because there are a lot of, there are still people out there who, healers who claim that they have the cure all or, you know, medicine that will heal things that don't necessarily work. And so just identifying the differences between the healers who are authentic and the healers who are, who are sham is important for that region as well and gives more validity to the medication. Yeah, no, I, I would say that's probably one of the, the biggest barriers because I mean, I get countless emails every week from people all over the world that like they have the cure, you know, especially for coronavirus right now, we have the cure. We're going to say it's like, well, there's no history of traditional medicine for this yet, but, um, and there's a long history of, of scam artists and, you know, snake oil salesmen in the U.S. as well that's raised a lot of doubt around natural remedies. And so really applying rigorous studies to understand um, the safety and efficacy is, is so um, critically important. And it's, it's, there are all these other layers, too. It's not just does the therapy work in a, in a Petri dish? Does it also work in the human? Is it safe? But then how does it fit in their traditional system of medicine? And um, how likely are people to continue taking it when they do feel better, like you, like you can with successful therapy and HIV? Keeping them on it is really um, important. Well, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we, it's interesting that one of the questions we often get is, why don't you just distribute HIV medication? Why don't you just distribute ART? And we could do that, but there are other organizations that do that. And I've spoken to them and they really have to hold people's hands. You know, you go out there, you give the ART, you have to make sure they take it and it's an ongoing endeavor. And it just doesn't seem very sustainable. The ART comes from the West and traditional medicine Interesting that you bring up COVID. It's it's so integral to each culture. And I'm noticing with COVID that different countries are really kind of scrambling, just like different industries here are scrambling to come up with a COVID cure. Different <laughs> countries are coming are scrambling to come up with their own herbal COVID cure. So it is um it will be interesting to see if we do testing on those to see what is valid and what is not. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm really excited because we're starting to do some screening with, with my collection of plants. Um, the challenge in testing against COVID is that to work with the live virus, you need a biosafety level three facility. Um, and so it's taken some time to wait for some of the safer assays that have pieces of the virus moved into different vectors or different kind of shuttles to um, test are now starting to slowly emerge. But um, I mean, 
don't get me wrong. I, I am sure that there will be some interesting activities found in nature for this, just as we've seen for every other infectious disease. There's going to be something out there. Um, but it's also a long road to understanding how safe is it? How does it work? You know, is it effective in humans and, and so on? So, um, but definitely an interesting area of work. Yeah. So what are so, your plans with Asili for the upcoming years? I know you were founded, it was it in 2018. Um, what's the strategic roadmap looking like for you guys right now? Good question. So, yes, we started in 2018 and our plans forward are to continue doing traditional, um, doing clinical trials on traditional medicine. Uh, we have some other plants in the pipeline. We've got another um, HIV treatment, actually, that is very promising. We have such a long legacy with this original treatment that it's just kind of a favorite of ours right now. But there is another treatment that's in the pipeline, as well as actually uh, sickle cell anemia, mm -hmm. which is showing some promise, which is very interesting as well. And uh, there's another plant for prostate cancer that may warrant a clinical trial as well. But we have to do preliminary, more preliminary research on that first. Yeah. Well, what, what can you tell us more about the uh, the research institute where, where you all collaborate with? Do they have chemists there and microbiologists or how, what is the setup like? So the National Institute for Medical Research is the national research institute. So it's kind of like our NIH, I, I oh, guess, oh. if I had to give some kind of um, equator. And they actually have satellite offices around the country. Their main <laughs> one is in Dar es Salaam, which is the largest city in, the, in Tanzania. And so they do get a lot of researchers. They have, like Justin, our, one of our co-founders, is an organic chemist. They have chemists. They have biologists, microbiologists. And they've got pretty good facilities there as well and, and equipment to do research. That's great. That's really exciting. I love to see um, this kind of work happening um, on traditional medicine, especially in countries where traditional medicine is so important. That's great. Yeah, well, I think it's important to have the collaboration with people in the country to find out what is needed and what is most useful and what where their interests lie as well. So, um, Jennifer, have any pharmaceutical companies shown interest in this traditional medicine? Shaman Pharmaceuticals worked with us back in the 90s to help when we were, they were collecting plants out there, we actually sent them samples and they were very helpful in identifying the plants botanically as well as doing some initial screening on it. Um, the plants are not as effective as ART now. So pharmaceutical companies aren't interested in pursuing it as an FDA drug. That's great. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Jennifer. This has been fascinating, and I'm definitely going to keep an eye out to see how things go with um, this and other future treatments that your um, organization is supporting. Thank you so much for having me. Great. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded from home during the COVID isolation period. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Stay healthy out there, and we'll see you next time.